and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to Douglas London, a retired senior operations officer with the Central Intelligence Agency and currently an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies and a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute. Over the course of his 34 years in the CIA, Mr. London predominantly served in the Middle East as well as South and Central Asia and Africa. He was decorated with the CIA's Career Intelligence Medal the McCone Award, and multiple unit and individual citations. He is also the author of the book, The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. Douglas London, thank you for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. Thanks for having me on the program. It's a pleasure. I've read your book, The Recruiter, and it's a fascinating insight into intelligence, the, the roles, the challenges that exist. What was your motivation for uh, the book? Uh, did you want to convey to those that perhaps know some degree of the world of intelligence, dynamics that they perhaps had not thought about? Or was this also for people that w- were interested in something that they had not looked at before? I think in a selfish way, it started as a personal journey. I've been uh, an intelligence officer for about 35 years. And when you, um, you hang it up or you retire, that's, that's, a, that's a time for reflection for anyone when they're moving on from a career. I was driven somewhat to retire when I did by some of the circumstances, the political weaponization of intelligence that had increased, and I wouldn't say started, but certainly increased and dramatically so during my last couple of years at the agency. And I think on reflecting upon that, I I found that the agency was really at a crossroads. And I found that crossroads really to have started the path after 9-11 and having served sort of symmetrically equally half of my career prior to and and following 9-11, I thought that the best way to illustrate that might be through some of the anecdotes and to demonstrate one, the value of human intelligence and how maybe that was not being um, applied as judiciously as it should be these days. And then the impact that 9-11 had obviously in so many ways on our country, but particularly on the capabilities of our intelligence community. And for me, it was really timely in that we find ourselves now, the discussion is about pivoting to great power competition or strategic competition. And um, the agency does indeed find itself at a crossroads. And, and I thought I could find a way to place some illumination on the issues and start a conversation, but do so in a way that didn't hurt the agency, didn't compromise its capabilities, but encouraged a greater appreciation of the redirection it needs to take uh, on the new landscape. Well, certainly it does provide huge appreciation to the work that the agency has done, especially when it comes to things such as uh, counterterrorism, which is one of your areas of specialty and in, in how I got to, to know you in, in the first place. One aspect that you, you spoke about in your book, you said that terrorism is a family business. And you spoke about the fact that you had many people that were actually related. How common is that? Is that something you could just expand on? Because I found that fascinating. I, I found it a pretty consistent thread, um, particularly in Al-Qaeda, uh, maybe to a lesser extent in the Islamic State, but certainly over the years in uh, addressing Al-Qaeda and many of its partner groups, other Sunni extremist organizations with which it partnered, and I would include the Taliban and Lashkar Taiba and Tarek Taliban Pakistan, and the list goodness knows can go on. That somewhat maybe like an international organized crime family, someone has to vouch for you. You don't just you know send in an application. Um, ISIS people actually did right, didn't they, in 2013 and 14 to go to the caliphate. But uh, particularly for Al-Qaeda and, and the external terrorist cells that the Islamic State operated, it was a matter of who you knew. And those connections were very often familial, um, but at a minimum, they were tribal, ethnic, uh, same places, same region. Uh, Al-Qaeda, particularly uh, after 9-11, 
had a huge contingent of Libyans. They were all they all began in the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, and they several of them rose to great positions of of power and significance. Um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who's regarded as the mastermind, and I find that an intolerable and inappropriate word for him, but the architect, if you would, of, of the, the 9-11 operation, is uh, one member of a large family, Amar Baluchi, uh, Abu, Abu Mosan Abu Baluchi, I mean, just a great number of his relatives. So I found that uh, for the level of trust that was required, certainly Al-Qaeda and ISIS took people in. I mean, there were Americans in Al-Qaeda, certainly had no family connection. But those who rose quickest and rose to positions of greatest responsibility tended to be those who already had a connection, and it was, it was often by blood. That's absolutely fascinating. Are you worried that there will be a new generation of terrorists whose fathers, uncles, brothers were at one time involved in terrorism, and now you see that the next generation potentially taking on the mantle, especially as, for example, we have seen uh, cases where Al-Qaeda fighters will be married into the Taliban fighters' families and vice versa. Well, in Al-Qaeda's case, doing so was a very deliberate strategy. It was um, not coincidental. Their um, operational method was always to integrate themselves in the society in which they were operating. And they were doing that in North Africa with their, their affiliate there as well as Yemen. But it really started in Afghanistan, where even as Al-Qaeda began to establish itself uh, in the 90s. Um, they very much focused on being part of that landscape. Abu Hamza bin Laden, the deceased son of, uh, one of the deceased sons of Osama bin Laden, wrote about that extensively in his media musings for Al-Sahab, their media organization, how they and the, the Afghans were really much tied together and tied to the land of the Khorasan, which of course they consider biblically is you know, parts of you know, Iran and Afghanistan and such and, and the region. So it, it, was, it was quite deliberate because blood is thicker than water and blood promotes a loyalty that I certainly saw with Al-Qaeda operatives who we would have the fortune sometimes of being able to detain because it was always far better to detain one than to remove them kinetically because there's, you know, quite, I would tell you quite frankly, there's greater value in a, in a live terrorist who might be a source of information. But uh, I, I recall one, and I wrote this in, in my book, where this was an individual who had uh, not been sort of uh, out there on the front lines with Al-Qaeda. He was certainly a supporter, but he was a member of the family that kept taking in other members of the family. When, when a fighter would be killed or when one would be arrested, he would bear the responsibility for wife or wives and children. But finally, it was his time to stand up and, and take his role. And I remember my team being able to detain him. I, and I, I asked him directly, I said, you know, who's going to take care of the family now? But he, given an opportunity in, in his case, he still wouldn't cooperate because those bonds of family were so strong. And I, and I believe that's very much the strategy behind, well, Al-Qaeda's done that. We see that across its affiliates and, and we see the Islamic State again, a bit more of a bureaucratic and a bit more of a diverse organization uh, doing that, particularly with its tighter external cells. So the bonds, the family ties, the, the sense of loyalty is uh, very pervading uh, across all of this. You, you said in your book also that uh, when it came to the Taliban and the Haqqani network, which is a faction that operates effectively within the Taliban, although they are, I guess you could say, semi-autonomous. So you mentioned that they were, you described them as untouchables when it came to dealing with Pakistan and the cooperation uh, from them post 9-11, that they were untouchables from the get-go. Why was that the case? Uh, Pakistan was, uh, was always a special case in trying to find transactional areas of common interests. Uh, uh, Pakistan also suffered from Islamic extremism and attacks from Al-Qaeda, though um, I would contend and I've written that some of that being their own doing by nurturing some of the very extremist elements and jihadist organizations that they saw as a fifth column of defense against India, which I've always uh, expressed uh, confidence is going to come back and bite them. But for uh, Pakistan, the, uh, the inter-services intelligence, which was the CIA's primary partner and the primary intelligence service there, a military organization, they had pretty much uh, gotten into bed with the Haqqanis for that very same reason. They 
they needed to preempt India in their mind. But in so doing, that means they had to side with the Taliban and they had to very much side with the Haqqanis who, whose business interests straddle that border. The Haqqanis, again, they're Pashtuns, just like the core of um, the Taliban is. Uh, but, you know, 40% of, I think it's 40% of uh, Afghanistan is, is Pashtun, but not all Pashtuns are alike in the sense that they have divisions based on parts of the country they're from, region and tribe. So the Haqqanis who played, I think, a decisive role in facilitating the Taliban's military victory uh, by their operations, they're, they're very effective, they're closer knit, they are a family organization, they are in heart a family business. And it was some of those business interests, I believe, that also influenced the Pakistanis because some of which they reaped some profit from, but fundamentally they needed the Haqqanis as part of that fifth column to prevent uh, what the United States wanted, which was a stable, centrally ruled Afghanistan, which at that time was developing better and better relations with India, and they saw a threat from India. So at the very beginning, even at the, the point of greatest cooperation with uh, Pakistan, which I would say was in the immediate, let's say, two to three years after 9-11, where they were a genuine partner in identifying and locating al-Qaeda members, Arab al-Qaeda members, within Pakistan. Uh, of course, it wasn't uh, totally unselfish. They received a lot of money from doing that. Uh, the United States would pay the rewards for justice programs, amounts for captives, which ranged in the millions, many millions. They were also making a lot of money operating the ground and air lines of communications that allowed NATO forces, ISAF forces, the United States forces to operate. But at the same time, facilitating the sanctuary for the Taliban, providing transit points for their fighters for an inordinate amount of fertilizer, which was the foundation of the improvised explosive devices that Afghanistan used, despite us, uh, the West, Western nations, NATO, putting a great deal of evidence in their face about how this was going on. There was too much at stake for them. They needed to support the Taliban. They needed to support the Haqqani. So from the very beginning, as early as 2004, 2005, uh, Pakistan had made it very clear uh, policy-wise they were going to support the, the Taliban. It was going to be the, the worst known secret kept, but they were certainly going to do that. And that's why uh, operating as the Haqqanis and the Taliban was, was pretty much off limits. There were some exceptions where a transactional uh, incentive could help or where they really had very little choice but to, to cooperate. And, and there were a couple of arrests that are kind of timely because one was... Um, Bereda, who was arrested, I think, in 2011, along, and he's now one of the two deputy prime ministers, as well as Boutaj uh, Nojouad, who was likewise arrested around the same time. Um, sort of, the, they didn't have a lot of choice based on the evidence and the circumstances and, and the possibility that they would be embarrassed by not. But uh, Taj Nojouad uh, was released long ago. And he's now the deputy intelligence chief in Afghanistan. And I would argue, maybe in reality, the, the true intelligence chief. Uh, because the, the, the current chief, um, Wasik, was a member of the Taliban Five in Guantanamo. I don't think those people are fully trusted. Uh, Berater was kept in jail because the Taliban had no interest in seeing him released, which was one of the points I made that Berater did not have the influence and insight into what was going on that um, our special envoy um, would like to claim and that uh, the United States government would like to have believed. So this lays out a very uh, complex uh, scenario, uh, which also perhaps also has paradoxes uh, too, that if on the one hand, Pakistan was ostensibly um, an ally in the war on terrorism, but was supporting groups like the Haqqanis, who were responsible for a lot of the violence in Afghanistan, including the deaths of hundreds of, of American soldiers, how did one find a way of trying to resolve this? Or is it that there was no way to effectively resolve this? Ideally, the United States government would have liked to have identified a transformational solution to our relations with Pakistan, uh, because just throwing evidence at them really didn't matter. I, I, I sat across from um, Pakistan ISI generals many times over the years, and those conversations had a familiar, familiar agenda. It was usually uh, an airing of the grievances. If you're a Seinfeld fan, you'll appreciate what that means, where the Pakistanis would lay out for 45 minutes to an hour how they are the agreed party and the victims of terrorism, and that 
It is only, you know, their sacrifice to work with the United States that has brought them this pain and suffering. And then one would lay out, you know, concrete evidence and, and clinical evidence to the point that we could, because we also had to be wary of sources and methods because providing them too much as occasionally might happen would allow them to find where the intelligence was coming from and change that either killing an agent or making a change that would impair other collection methods. So the, the fundamental um, impasse was really India. Uh, Pakistan's policy in the region was and is uh, based on its concerns over what it perceives as an existential threat from India. It's never won a war with India. India is far larger, has far more arms to bring to bear. Uh, thus the Pakistan's uh, development of a, a nuclear program to try to find some way to even the playing field. But in a conservative war, it's, uh, they, they see the great unlikelihood and they do believe that India is an aggressor and that India would take advantage of weakness and, and strike at them if, if they could. So unless or until one can find some way to address the uh, Indo-Pak uh, drama that's been uh, ongoing and will continue for some time, there was no way they were going to change what is an actual pillar of their defense strategy, which is supporting jihadist groups. Lashkar Taiba, the other Kashmiri groups, is a perfect example. These are groups that you know survived, were sponsored, matured, trained, and aided by the pa Pakistan intelligence. The Pakistan intelligence did a lot of the recruiting for them. But the danger is these groups have grown more independent and they've grown more international. Lashkar Taiba, for example, is hardly uh, and solely a, a Kashmiri independent group right now. It, it trained and worked with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan. It has a much more internationalist agenda as an international Sunni extremist group. And I believe the, the danger for all of us, and I think right now the danger with the Taliban in control in Afghanistan, its military victory, is for the region in that I don't know how much control Pakistan continues to exercise. Uh, over some of these groups, I, I know in the recent weeks we've seen the um, the press discuss the uh, the political group that wanted the expulsion of the French ambassador because the caricatures of the prophet uh, was supporting um, the the assassin of a Pakistani governor who had sided with someone who was accused of blasphemy. Um, that's an ultra extremist group that actually seeks the overthrow of the generals and seeks a Taliban-like government. They were flying the Taliban flag at the Red, Red Fort. But the Pakistanis try to detain their leader, designate the group as a terrorist organization, but then because of the ensuing violence, they back down. That is now a legitimate political party. The leader has been free. And uh, the only thing that group had to step back from was calling for the expulsion of the ambassador and some language uh, about promoting violence. So I don't know that the Pakistan government as it stands today, the military run government, is really in a position to control some of the groups that it has long nurtured. Yes, and that group that you, you mentioned uh, is the Tariqi Labak uh, Pakistan, yeah. uh, which is effectively a very radical uh, entity that has held the government of Pakistan to ransom on various issues. And the fact that they, the Prime Minister Imran Khan has effectively had to surrender uh, to their demands just illustrate how powerful radical forces are in, in Pakistan. When we spoke last year, and you're kindly helping me with my research to do with Al-Qaeda and the region, we discussed what the potential consequences would be of a Western withdrawal from Afghanistan. Sadly, all of those scenarios have proved to be true. What were your thoughts on the situation now in Afghanistan? Is there anything that has surprised you or worried you more than, than you were previously worried about? Um, well, I, I really wish I could say I've been surprised uh, and um, well, that things are worse or, or maybe better, but they, they've played out essentially as I, as I expected. The Taliban has been very predictable over, its, over the course of this war. Uh, they've not done anything that's been surprising, which was the disappointment I had in the United States um, approach, particularly under the Trump administration, uh, in trying to negotiate uh, a settlement with the Taliban from a position of weakness uh, without any serious conditions, because we never really kept any conditions, without a true end game of the state which we wanted to see when we left. It was just 
try to find the most honorable face-saving way out, which is, which is ultimately what happened. President Biden, likewise, he inherited a, a very bad deal, perhaps, and I've called it the absolute worst diplomatic deal I've ever seen. Uh, but, you know, President Biden had an opportunity to re-examine our policy in Afghanistan, not necessarily perpetuate what we had done and done wrong, uh, or to accept what he was handed. But I also believe President Biden thought the American people were just exhausted. He was certainly exhausted with the issue, and he just wanted the quickest way out. So I, I think you just need to look at the actions of the Taliban to understand what they're going to do, and certainly not their words. Uh, look at their actions over the past 20 years and the years that they ruled, and you pretty much have a set pattern of what they're going to do in the future because the people running that country are those very same people. It's predominantly the Taliban leadership, which took to hiding in Pakistan. They are essentially running the country. Um, very few exceptions. Uh, the Taliban Five got some portfolios, some minor, I would say minor, some of the deputy positions I think are for face more than anything. I don't necessarily think they exert much of a progressive stance anyway, because if you look at some of their comments given, that's available in, on public record to their debriefers, they were part and parcel of the uh, genocide against the Hazara, the Shia, uh, the misogyny and, and, and punishment of women. And I don't really believe we're gonna see any change of that. I think the, the, the challenge and the questions for the United States, for its NATO partners is, well, you know, in trying to find the most effective way to deal with Afghanistan and what the reality is, not what we'd like it to be, are we better off engaging it, not engaging it? Do we provide aid because of the humanitarian crisis and conditions? Do we not provide aid without some ability to, to exert um, behavior that we'd like to see out of Afghanistan? Those are tremendously hard choices, choices that I personally, as a human being, really have. Uh, I, I, to see people starving and suffering, that's not politics, that's, that's real. And are we better off just trying to establish some credibility by providing aid for the sake of aid itself? Again, I, I, I'm personally torn, but I, I see the Taliban, if anything, being smarter, but not having changed its objectives. I think the Taliban, in fact, I'm certain the Taliban will continue to aid those groups which it feels loyalty from and to, such as Tariq Taliban, Pakistan, which continues to operate from Afghanistan soil in, in attacking Pakistan and seeking the overthrow of the government. And the only language I've seen coming out of the Taliban is not all, oh, we'll, we'll turn TTB over, we'll push them out. It was, you know, you all should negotiate an agreement. The uh, Eastern Islamic Turkmenistan agreement, the, the Uyghurs from China, or at least one element of the Uyghurs from China that the Chinese are worried about, uh, the Taliban's not going to abandon them, certainly not going to abandon Al-Qaeda. I think they will try to be careful. But, you know, what do they have to lose? The Taliban's not looking to be a global economic uh, powerhouse or even integrate into the global system. They need just enough to keep control. Taliban needs to exercise control. They don't necessarily want the influence and, and the danger that comes with too much Western influence, which comes with too good an economy, which might make the people have higher expectations. But I think that at the same time is a danger for the Taliban. This is not the country they ruled uh, between 96 and 2001, particularly the cities. The cities are, 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 are totally different than what they left behind. The people's expectations, society has changed. The countryside, yeah, that's pretty much the same. They control the countryside. But the cities, I think they're gonna have a harder time and that's where there could be some, some gaps, some problems, some divisions within the Taliban itself as it tries to wrestle with how to maintain control, which is their primary goal. How do they maintain control without ceding too much influence or weakness to outside powers, which they desperately want to avoid? And how do they stay consistent with their ideological agenda, which is a very conservative and uh, often with the pillar of jihad, approach to at least their region. And I think their region is what they, they care about most. Those are, those are quite the dilemmas for NATO and, and the US. Well, and tying in those dilemmas, you have Sirajuddin Haqqani, the leader of the Haqqani network, who is now the interior minister of the Taliban regime. Effectively, he is the most powerful person in uh, Afghanistan and retains those very close ties with Al-Qaeda. 
do you envisage Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups looking to reassert themselves in Afghanistan via Pakistan? Because they already seem to be there in some numbers. Do you see that growing and expanding uh, and, and, and then presenting a problem? I think it will. I think the Taliban will try to be a little more careful about it. Uh, the, the Taliban has the advantage that they know we're not going to reinvade Afghanistan again. I mean, we might retaliate. We might take economic sanctions. We might take military strikes, but we're not going to invade the Afghanistan. We're not going to overthrow the Taliban again, at least not directly, not militarily. I mean, there's always a possibility of covert action and regular warfare, uh, but even that's pretty broken at this moment because there's no Northern Alliance as there was in 2001 that the United States was able to support. So I, I'm confident that the Taliban will continue to provide sanctuary. Uh, we'll no doubt ask those groups operating uh, in their territory to keep a lower profile and to at least to allow some window dressing to impede the possibility of tying future attacks to training, recruitment, organization, planning, leadership, command and control that might be conducted from Afghanistan. But look at just some of the metrics we've seen, what information we could trust. A, a great number of Al-Qaeda operatives who were in Iran, uh, maintaining their sanctuary there that the Iranians provided, have gone back to Afghanistan. Uh, they are now joining the significant number of highly placed, well-experienced Al-Qaeda operatives, particularly those of the Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, which is the uh, regional affiliate, the local affiliate, who were released by the Taliban, who are still there. Um, there was press uh, at least a couple of notable uh, former Al-Qaeda uh, individuals who, uh, one who had been arrested and then released by the Pakistanis, who has gone back and very publicly gone back to Afghanistan. So I think that's the real challenge. Uh, it is a largely ungoverned space still uh, where these groups will be able to conduct a lot of their most important functions. The, the, the biggest advantage the United States had over the 20 years it was in Afghanistan was attrition, essentially, which was keeping terrorist organizations that were operating there on the defensive, uh, attrition their numbers, preempting their capabilities to, to transition to the offensive because they were busy trying just to survive, moving fighters out, moving many to Iran, moving those to Syria, Yemen, and such like that. That no longer exists. There's no longer any counter-terrorist pressure. So those groups are free to exercise command and control, um, operate on the media, uh, train, raise money. It's, it's, it's certainly beyond our reach directly right now because there's no local partner with whom to work. We're not going to be working with the Taliban. Uh, and there's no um, rebel organization right now, no insurgent group fighting the Taliban that we could work with. And, you know, people speak about, oh, we have ISIS as a common enemy. Certainly, ISIS is a common enemy. It's, it's no friend of the Taliban, though, ironically, their philosophy is essentially the same. Uh, it's really, in my opinion, politics that divides them. Uh, ISIS in the region, ISIS-KP of the Khorasan province, largely made up of people from Pakistan, people who came from Tariq Taliban Pakistan, the Masudis, Waziris. I think there was one of the emirs who was a former Taliban member, but that was the exception. So uh, there was a lot more in terms of political differences and power and a grab for resources. So for that reason, ISIS is a threat and it's a threat to us as they look to the possibility of using successful external operations to generate greater credibility, raise more money, uh, raise more recruits. But even there, that's a real dicey path to lead working with the Taliban against ISIS because we don't necessarily want to see one or the other, uh, but we are compromising our sources and methods and capabilities by working with them that they will most certainly share with the likes of Al-Qaeda and terror Taliban Pakistan and other groups to whom they're loyal. Well, sticking with the ISIS affiliate, uh, ISKP or ISIS-KP, there seems to be, again, this situation where nothing is ever black and white in Afghanistan, Pakistan. You've got all these complicated relationships where even sometimes you could see low-level support between ISKP and the Haqqanis, uh, for example. And there are reports suggesting that the group uh, ISKP could be able to launch attacks globally uh, within a year, uh, potentially 18 months. Do you agree with that assessment? 
There's a little bit to unpack there. I, I think it's um, what notoriously was absent is any comment about what Al Qaeda is able to do in six months to a year. Um, General Austin, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin, uh, I apologize, uh, commented as Afghanistan was collapsing that uh, the intelligence community had anticipated that Al Qaeda could reconstitute and um, form a serious uh, homeland threat within one to two years. That's roughly true, but that was a projection based on still having a partner force in Afghanistan, that there was still an ongoing war between the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and the Taliban, not one which the Taliban maintained complete uh, military control of the country. I thought it was suspicious to me that there was no mention of Al-Qaeda yet. ISIS-KP, which you know, truly uh, is not as well organized internationally. They depend on core ISIS, which uh, remnants or pockets of are still in the Levant for a lot of that. They Otherwise, they have to turn to their own sort of familial ties, those Afghans and Pakistanis and maybe Indians who are in, in places of the world that they could support. I think there's certainly the um, the potential to inspire attacks in that time frame, uh, six to 12 months for, for any group, because that doesn't really take a whole lot of time. And it depends on how they're doing with their media. It's how they're doing in terms of promoting themselves and if they could promote success that they could claim from at home. So I don't discount the assessment that ISIS could present a homeland threat. I think uh, it'd be more problematic for them to constitute the type of 9-11 or July 7th, 2005 threat or, or threat to the trains in Spain that we saw over the years where they're actually sending fighters. I'm not discounting it. I just don't know that they have the logistical maturity yet to do that because there's a lot of logistics. And I don't know that that's their priority. Al-Qaeda's priority is striking the United States homeland. That's without a doubt, is striking the United States externally. So they're certainly gonna be much more in gear and they've got a greater a web of connections to do so. So I think when I, when I read that, I certainly didn't discount it, but I focused more on, and what about Al-Qaeda? How come that's sort of notably absent? So your own opinion is that it is Al-Qaeda that potentially is the greater transnational threat uh, rather than ISKP, who could still be a challenge, but principally it is Al-Qaeda. Again, I don't want to underestimate what ISKP could do, but they're going to play to their strengths. Core ISIS from the Levant was able to connect to a great number of contacts and colleagues who were in Europe or had been in Europe and then joined them and then went back. Those of Algerian and Moroccan ethnicity who are French nationals, uh, citizens of Belgium as such. ISIS-KP um, may not have that same bench of connections and people. And again, I can't speak with any authority because basically you'd be looking at those from the Masudis, the Waziris, Pashtuns, and they're certainly global. Um, but I don't know that there are those who are tied to ISIS for being part of ISIS sake as, as opposed to being just ethnically tied to people who are in the organization. So I'm not discounting their capacity to do something. I think the greater threat, uh, both short term uh, but I think it'll be more long-term, actually, to be honest, is going to be from Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is probably going to be more patient in, in establishing itself because it's going to want to be successful. And I think they might be able to throw something together sooner than ISIS, ISKP could externally. But I would suspect if I had a bet, they'll probably be a little more patient and try to do something that will not be an embarrassment, but that will be uh, more likely to succeed. Most definitely, I would I would agree with you uh, on that. Then, in in terms of our counterterrorism operations, uh, Doug, for Afghanistan, what what options are there that are actually viable? You have to look at Afghanistan on the map; it's completely landlocked. Uh, we don't necessarily have a an ally that is going to allow us to operate on the ground. So, potentially having that intelligence gathering. Uh, has been severely uh, impaired. Negotiations with Pakistan seem to be continuing without reaching any clear uh, resolution. So do we have an effective uh, 
strategy for dealing with a, a regrowth of terrorism in Afghanistan? We have the resources that are available to us, which are fewer and, and more logistically challenging. So uh, intelligence has been collected from closed uh, borders before. It's, it's part of the business. You operate with, you know, uh, President Biden refers to an over-the-horizon strategy, and that, that relates to it. But on the intelligence piece, you try to have stay-behind agents. Uh, I would like to think that for the years we were there in Afghanistan, that CIA and, and other intelligence services have agents that it deliberately wanted left behind, who are willing to stay behind, who retained access to intelligence and, and a means to communicate. And those means are going to be impersonal, um, most likely either electronic or otherwise, might rely on couriers, uh, might rely on what we would refer to as a principal agent, which is an agent from that country that you've recruited, whose job isn't to provide intelligence his or herself, but to collect intelligence from others who have access. But there's a lot of complications and dangers. It's uh, much more challenging from a counterintelligence perspective. It's much harder to run any network securely because anytime you're operating an agent network where more than one agent knows of another, then compromise of one can roll compromise of the others. Um, when you're dealing indirectly with intelligence, it's not as timely. It's often indirect, might be secondhand, the chain of information, chain of acquisition might be more extended. So it's more difficult to vouch for and validate the access of the ultimate source of the intelligence. Does the ultimate source even know they're providing intelligence or just having a meal with a buddy who's talking to another buddy who's talking to the CIA? So the quality of the intelligence will also be weakened our ability to test it and stand behind it. And when we talk in that, so much of the conversation is on Oh, can we fly drones from far away? That's not the issue. Um, we've got great satellites. We've got terrific drones. The technology is super. They can fly from hither and yarn and loiter over Afghanistan. But what are they looking at? What are they listening to? How do they know what to look at and listen to and where to look and listen? That's provided by agents on the ground. Agents provide phone numbers, radio frequencies, locations of houses, homes, safe houses, commands, times of patterns that people take when they're out and about and what they look like, physical descriptions. So all the great technical collection we have, and we do, we have extensive technical collection and capabilities, um, depends on people at the end of the day. And we will still be collecting intelligence. We will still be operating agents on the ground, um, very much remotely, indirectly. Uh, we will strengthen those networks over time as Afghan um, dissident groups grow um, we will most likely start engaging them and cooperating and trying to take advantage of their networks. But again, they'll have their own biases, they'll have their own flaws, and they'll have their own counterintelligence challenges to deal with that will be inherited. So the strategy is um, to go with what we have and try to be as scrupulous as possible, to be really vigilant about the quality of the intelligence, but then decide at the end of the day, as you said, what are we going to do with it? You don't have a local partner on the ground. So you don't have you know, an ability to reach down really and capture someone unless you want to send in special forces, which is doable, but highly dangerous. Uh, and and you know, do we want to have the nightmares of special forces operatives being shot down and taken captive? I think those are going to be political decisions that will drive a lot of what we do. So if you're just left with uh, kinetic activities to take people off the map, I don't necessarily know that that addresses the conditions for terrorism that with which we should be most concerned. Um, how do we actually impede the, the rise of terrorism or the drive of those to, to conduct violence against us and, and others? I think it's a lot more complicated and, and more holistic. It has a security component. It has certainly a military component. And a lot of that's gonna be driven by just good intelligence to try to inform our understanding of the dynamics so that we can best manipulate that in the most advantageous way to our own security. So there are options, but it's also a question of waiting and biding one's time to see if those options can increase. And it's interesting that we may not necessarily have a strong visible footprint, but you could say that there is a low-key toe print in, in Afghanistan. If we look at um, some of the other neighbors of uh, Afghanistan, I, uh, in our conversation, you were mentioning Iran. I always found that curious because 
in your book also, you spoke about it, that there were Al-Qaeda fighters that would go to Iran, that they would be based there, that they even found sanctuary there. Now, everyone knows that Iran plays various different strategic games. On the surface, they're supposed to be hostile towards Al-Qaeda and vice versa. And yet you had this whole host of Al-Qaeda figures that at one time were being based in Iran. So what does Iran get from having these groups uh, operating there? Uh, Why would they even allow it in the first place? So uh, Iranians, and I, and, I, and I say this with admiration, are, are uh, as political opponents and intelligence opponents, uh, extremely practical. I think they could afford to be practical because they do most of what they do in secret from their own people. So the idea of them hosting al-Qaeda, well, I mean, that's, that's not a question. Uh, Abu Mohammed al-Masri, who's the deputy emir of al-Qaeda, was killed in Tehran living comfortably, happily, driving with his daughter uh, in, in you know, uh, conditions provided by the Iranian government. Saifa Adel, who uh, moved up to succeed him, uh, likewise is there, uh, along with uh, a host of others. Now, a number of them did move back. For the Iranians, it's not simply the advantage of thumbing their nose in the American space, or even a practical advantage of making it less likely Al-Qaeda would do something against them elsewhere, because it depends on conditions. I think, uh, I believe, Al-Qaeda is a valuable proxy, another valuable surrogate to uh, the Iranians that serves their purpose in a very measured way. I think their cooperation went from simply uh, sanctuary and trying to impede Al-Qaeda acting against them and thumbing the nose at us to a more active role around 2015. And the reason for that is the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of, of Action. I think that was a lever that they wanted to have as a safety valve for them to be able to act. So, uh, but at the same time, Iran today is uh, looking with some apprehension at what's going on. Now, the Iranians wanted the United States out. That was their priority because the United States military presence, whether it's in Iraq or whether Afghanistan, they see as the Pakistanis see India as an existential threat to them. So getting us out was great. So they certainly cooperated to some degree with uh, to the Taliban, provided aid, material aid. At the same time, they were talking to the, the Afghan government that was in place at the time. But now, now what? So the Iranians know up close and personally what the Taliban will do to Shia and Hazars. They lost nine diplomats, I think, at their consulate in Mazar Sharif uh, when the Taliban was in power. Uh, the Taliban has uh, operated in a genocidal fashion against the Hazars, uh, which is, you know, a community very much that the Iranians want to protect and support. So I don't think it's a it's a real happy day for them to see uh, the Taliban in charge. And I think being practical as they are, they will try to find some practical modus vivendi. Uh, but at the same time, it's been interesting, some of the language they've had about Taliban actions or lack of actions in promoting minorities, Hazars in the uh, the cabinet post that they've announced and the care they've taken or support resources they provided to Hazar communities. The Hazars have been the primary target after all the Islamic State, they and Taliban fighters and the Islamic State continues to target Shia schools, Shia hospitals, Shia communities, Shia mosques. So I don't think it's it's a happy day for the Iranians and, and they will try to find their footing, I think if anything, it makes them not necessarily a, a opportune partner, but at least an indirect partner to promote certain stabilizing measures the West, the, that NATO would like to see Afghanistan take and pressure we'd like to apply them. They might, without making it look like they're supporting us, be helpful in that fashion. I think the same could be said of the Central Asian states, which you know have their own insurgency issues, which have their own extreme Islamic extremist groups, their own civility problems. Remember, Tajiks, Uzbeks, they form a significant part of the Afghan population. Now, there's not that many of them in the Taliban. There's a few uh, they've promoted, but really not that many. They are in high profile positions. And it's still the Taliban is fundamentally a, a Pashtun organization, but they're certainly worried the Central Asian states are. So uh, again, I don't think they are, are are totally thrilled to see um, the Taliban in charge. So again, 
I'm looking for some quiet support, some quiet activity. I, I don't see Vladimir Putin ever allowing a U.S. military presence, but I could be wrong. He could find some advantage in targeting us there by having a presence uh, there and targeting mostly from a collection point of view, I would say, not you know directly targeting kinetically because he doesn't want to bring U.S. forces closer to Russia or to, uh, to the Baltics these days, for sure. But I, I think uh, those natural concerns of the regional players might at least lend to an atmosphere for some quiet behind the scenes activity, which could help um, put some pressure on the Taliban. But again, I'm not real optimistic that pressure like that really has an impact on them. Well, I noticed you mentioned uh, Russia and, and Vladimir Putin and, uh, and Afghanistan. So does Russia play that much influence now uh, in the country where they can effectively or regionally they can stop the West from potentially coming back or, or having a greater involvement? The, the Russians, obviously, and Putin particularly, are, are delighted we're gone and delighted we were bled as much as we were, and they contributed to that bleeding by their support to the Taliban. Uh, Russia wants to be a player. They want to be on every stage. They want to be center stage. They played a role in diplomatic activity with uh, Afghanistan and with the Taliban. They'll continue to do that because they see it as a means of exercising influence and undermining our own largely at, at American expense. I think uh, the Russians have to be concerned about the threat from Islamic extremism from Afghanistan, uh, variously Chechens and, and other, other elements uh, in their own country uh, or their, their sphere of influence that they're worried about, worried about the Islamic State, but it's not really a high threat to them. Even if there were to be uh, an occasional attack, small level attack in Russia, Putin doesn't face the uh, issues that an American leader has to from public outrage, from, the, from a free press. He could endure some of that, and he could then respond uh, very brutally if, if he wants to, as, as he has. So I think Russia is less worried than the Central Asian states. The Central Asian states have more to lose uh, than, than Russia has. I think Putin's in a, a greater position of security. But at the same time, you know, he's no fan of the Taliban, and he's, you know, obviously going to have to contend with threats from the Islamic State, from um, other Sunni uh, extremist groups that will be using Afghanistan for sanctuary. Well, I definitely want to come back to uh, Russia for a final question. Uh, but before we do that, factoring in one of uh, Afghanistan's other uh, neighbors is uh, China. And there's been increasing talk about China's role in Afghanistan assisted by Pakistan. Do you think that China can succeed in Afghanistan in terms of its uh, objectives that may be economic or strategic, uh, especially if they have Pakistan's backing, which is something that perhaps the West was not able to achieve in the last 20 years? Well, China wants stability and influence. Their, their Belt and Road Initiative is uh, the cornerstone of their policy in the region. And that extends to them the type of influence that they're looking for, economic, uh, as well as military access to ports and such, and leverage over countries. And look at the leverage they have over Pakistan in terms of how indebted Pakistan is to China. Um, China is worried about its own internal security. And in that respect, the, the Uyghur question uh, is at the forefront. And how forthcoming will a, a Taliban-run Afghanistan be? I think the Taliban will cooperate uh, concerning Uyghurs who are, are working with ISIS. And there are a fair number. I think the Uyghur communities tended to split somewhat. Originally, they were really focused with Al-Qaeda-associated groups, such as Eton, and they drifted, like some of the Central Asians did, to ISIS uh, for power, opportunity, and, and, and such like that. So I, I think China will be also trying to find that balance in trying to promote uh, their Belt and Road Initiative and trying to have access and trying to have influence. I mean, their main nemesis in the region is obviously India. Uh, so they share that with Pakistan. I don't think the Taliban feels terribly threatened by India as much. Um, so I, I think China likewise is, uh, is not all in with the Taliban, is going to try to find accord and accommodation, which they're, they're, they're good at. I don't know that they'll get as much from the Taliban that they would like. They're not going to get the Taliban to turn over or impede Uyghurs who are associated with Eton. Uh, I think the Taliban is not really thrilled about infrastructure. 
the Taliban won the war based on a lack of infrastructure, based on the demographics and the topography and geography of Afghanistan, which is lent to be a very um, uh, decentralized country. They're all proud of being Afghans, but they all kind of fall along very decentralized lines, region and, and tribe. So I think the uh, Taliban only goes so far in allowing for that much infrastructure, tying all the roads together, which is very much at, at, at the height of, of the Chinese policy. So there'll be some frustrations, but the Chinese will try to find a way to work with it. I don't think the Chinese are going to abandon the Taliban, but at the same time, I don't think they're going to be an unquestioning, unconditional friend as well. They're going to try to find ways to promote what's in their interest, which is some of that balance we talked about. If things go wrong in Afghanistan for China, does that then impact on their relationship with Pakistan because of Pakistan's very close relationship with the Taliban and the Haqqanis? You know, the Chinese were always concerned about their investments in Pakistan and, and in Afghanistan, and the Chinese did a good job of dealing with the Taliban in the countryside, paying them off to allow them to continue to operate their mines. So the Pakistanis have often been, you know, messaged by the Chinese to temper it down, temper it down, and the Pakistanis would do perhaps what they could superficially. I, I think that uh, you know, the Chinese-Pakistan relationship is, is very sound uh, as it is. I think China has only increased its leverage. Uh, Pakistan doesn't want to be a slave to one state to fight off being a slave to another, so it's going to try to maintain some degree of independence, and, and I'm sure that Chinese officials sometimes had the same frustrating meetings with their Pakistani counterparts that, that I endured over the years. But I, I don't see that relationship breaking. And similarly, I don't really necessarily see the U.S.-Pakistani relationship breaking. I see it getting really frail at times and, and even by a thin thread at others. But I, I don't think there's at this point a willingness by either party to break the relationship, though there are times I think the United States should push it more. And for the American part, for the NATO part, the great worry is, well, if that relationship breaks, then we no longer have influence at keeping what might be a jihadist Taliban-like government coming to power in Pakistan and having control of their nuclear weapons. That's the ultimate nightmare. NATO does not want that fight. Even in its worst days in Afghanistan, when we were losing the highest number of casualties from facilitation provided to the Haqqanis and the Taliban by Pakistan, we were not willing to break that relationship because the threat and the danger we saw of a broken Pakistan that in, from its ashes could come a Taliban-type government there was a nightmare we did, with which we did not want to have to contend. I know I said that I was going to get to Russia, but you keep raising so many good points that it just keeps making me want to ask you more interesting questions. So this will probably be the penultimate question, but you spoke about the, the concern that there is of nuclear weapons getting into the wrong hands uh, in Pakistan. But, uh, and that, that was certainly something that I've heard a lot uh, by policymakers in the last um, 20 years. Is that a, a genuine concern? Uh, because they seem quite safe and secure under the military. Uh, has there ever been an occasion where it's actually got close to being in the wrong hands? And I guess then it also comes down to defining what the wrong hands are. So um, answering that backwards first, I'd say there have been insider threats within the Pakistan military uh, that would give one pause. Uh, they have been disrupted, uh, the ones that, of which I'm aware over the years, but they have come. I don't think that we should overestimate the stability of the military. I think the greatest, one of the greatest denial and deception operations I've ever seen done has been done by Pakistan in convincing the West, convincing the United States that we should be betting on them. We should rely on them. They're just like us. They're progressive. You know, they're, 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 they believe in God, they're Islamic, but you know, they're, they're progressive and they, they run the country in a, you know, I wouldn't say secular because it's an Islamic Republic fashion, but uh, that, We've got to invest in them. We've got to trust them because we're all together in this. I, I, I think that's one of the greatest D&D programs I've seen because I don't think the Pakistan military is that cohesive. I don't think it's that stable. And I don't think it's that resistant to an uprising. Um, I, I've worked with Pakistani security elements against Al-Qaeda, against 
tried to against the Taliban. And uh, there was no shortage of sympathy for some of these movements. There was no shortage of contempt for what they still saw as a very imperialist, colonialist West, not just the United States, Great Britain and others, who they did not cry for when we suffered our own defeats and problems. So I would not really have that confidence in Pakistan's military. I think that's one of the reasons why the West, the United States particularly, wanted that continuing influence and access to provide training, to have some eyes on, to provide means for the Pakistan leadership to continue to secure its nuclear weapons, its way it delegated authority. But I do not sleep well at night thinking that all is well there. Okay, well, that is a very somber assessment. So this is the last question now, I can promise. Is <laughs> we, we spoke about uh, Russia, and right now, as you've probably seen, that there is this migration crisis on the border between uh, Belarus, Poland, and, and Lithuania. And there's a belief that it is being created deliberately by President Lukashenko of, of Belarus, involving hybrid warfare, potentially with the support and assistance of uh, Russia. And this is now a major concern for NATO. What is your take on what is happening? I think we have to get a lot smarter um, about Russia. I think we have to be a lot more realistic. Vladimir Putin has thrown out all the rules of order that we went by because largely they were imposed by the West. They were imposed by NATO and the United States on the rest of the world in terms of comportment and behavior. Uh, Putin's now talking about the Ukraine, uh, unashamedly saying Ukraine's part of Russia. He does not even respect Ukraine's sovereignty as an independent country. So you know, threats about embarrassing or cajoling the Russians, I think Doug Wise and my colleagues would well, are futile because you're not gonna embarrass or cajole Vladimir Putin. Uh, Russia, historically, and Putin, as very much in that grain, understands consequences, reciprocity, actions. So there's got to be a threat uh, for Putin to be concerned enough to change his behavior. I, I don't see us yet embarking on that multi-domain warfare that Russia is, which very much in the charter of General Gerasimov is famous doctrine from 2013, which is essentially, it's been written on that all measures short of war, um, addition through subtraction, we're, we're weaker than uh, the United States. So we have to even the playing field. So we want to win the war without having to fire shots. We want to be able to win the war by compromising alliances, using uh, propaganda, disinformation, intimidation, economic hegemony, in order to make sure that the United States and NATO doesn't have the chance to send Marines, the 82nd Airborne, you know, the German armored divisions forward, because we would have already lost the war before it became a military one. That multi-domain warfare of fighting the cyber realm, the information realm, the economic realm, is one that I don't think NATO and the United States have put in their arms around holistically as a campaign. We do it independently. We, we fight cyber with fiber. Cyber, we fight, we try to fight disinformation with, you know, influence and messaging and diplomacy. But the Russians do it as a campaign. It's all very much synchronized and tied together, which is what's been effective. Russia is not uh, a supreme military power. They are uh, enhancing their, their capabilities by dark marking on a, on a strategy, this multi-domain strategy, which we're not yet fighting back with. So I think NATO, the United States really have to start embracing that and starting to synchronize how we deal with Russia across the playing field, because it's not necessarily symmetrical. If they are gonna you know, threaten us here, we may not have the capacity to counter that threat there. We need to find an asymmetrical way which the Russians get and understand, okay, that's the price, we're not gonna do it. Because other than that, I think we're still now playing Putin's game and by Putin's rules, as opposed to one where we could exercise our own advantages, of which we have many. Well, and on that note, uh, I think we can conclude with knowing that this problem is not going to go away and it's something we're going to have to address. And as you said, we're going to have to get a lot smarter uh, about uh, Russia. Uh, Douglas London, it's been a real pleasure uh, to have you on NATO Deep Dive. We're very grateful and, and thank you so much for spending the time with us. 
Thanks. The pleasure is all mine. You, you all have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the Deep Dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.